Good morning. Um, I've already mentioned this to some people. I'm going to mention it again. Uh, if you go onto our sermon page, in the top right-hand corner, there's a video called Overview of Ezra and Nehemiah. kind of gives you the historical context about the book, when it was written, what's going on. So I would uh, advise you to take advantage of that. I'll be referring to it from time to time as we go through the series. Tammy, we go back. Okay. Miss Tammy's back for children's church. Even the kids want to join her back in the yellow room. Sorry about that. If you have your Bibles open to the book of Ezra, chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first six verses of the book this morning. Starting in verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judea. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who's in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free real offering For the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites arose. Even everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. As a way of introduction, returning home, we see happening here, plays a major part in a lot of our lives. Every school, high school, college, has a thing every fall called homecoming. It gives you an opportunity to go back, catch up with classmates, find out what's been going on in their lives. Returning home gives a sense of community and shared history. Rather it be the football team coming back or refugees, in this case, returning home from being exiled. God is reclaiming and restoring. Now those two words are going to be used interchangeably throughout this series. Reclaiming means to regain possession of, in this case, are going back to take possession of their homeland. Restoring to bring to or put back into a former or original state. So we see God fulfilling His promise and bringing His people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. One thing I want you to keep in mind as we move forward, it's very important for Ezra to remind the people there is continuity with them. In other words, they came after the exile, they're going back, but before the exile, you, you are connected to that people. There's no disconnection here. You still are God's people. He's working in history to make this all together. So he wants to make sure that they have connection and understand that connection with people before them. Now, one thing as we look at this book, Nehemiah 
and Ezra were one book originally with one author. And it takes place approximately 55 years after the Babylonian exile. Uh, 550 B.C., Cyrus unites the Persian tribes. They overthrow the Median Empire. And then the greatest rise to power is when they defeated the Babylonians in 539. And in 538, we see this edict come from Cyrus. That puts everything in perspective. And like I would tell you, check out that overview once again. But as we look at these first... Six chapters, they focus on rebuilding the temple. This whole section emphasizes God's sovereignty and his providence. That God works in history, fulfill his will, and he will even use the rulers of four nations to fulfill his purpose. Look what it says now. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now Ezra was concerned about his history, and he puts all the material in chronological framework, but he did not pretend to give us an event-by-event, step-by-step history of what happened when they came back after the exile. He chose events that were significant in the reestablishment, the continuity, and the reorganization of the covenant community, Israel. Now, typical of biblical history, Ezra explains the events in terms of divine will. See, neutral, objective history, free of prejudice, free of presuppositions, doesn't really exist. Your point, your view of history is important. Your worldview is important. But it's informed by, or at least partly by, one's theological convictions. It affects how you understand historical events and how you understand biblical events. In other words, when you look at history, you're going to have a little biased view based on your understanding and... Even if your theological understanding, if you believe there's a God or not, it's going to affect how you see historical events. Now, people say history repeats itself, and to some degree I agree with that. Uh, You see fashion and hairstyles. The mullet is now coming back. God forbid. I just hope parachute pants don't come back. Just saying. But a understanding of history, a biblical view of history is that in the beginning... Eternal the past, there is God, He creates the universe. Now it moves forward. And in the middle, you have the cross event, and now we're up here somewhere waiting for a second return. So history is linear. It doesn't go in circles. God is pushing, He's pulling, He's guiding all of history to a specific point in time when He's going to send His Son back. So no matter what we're seeing going on, God is guiding behind it. And what we don't See, and what we don't understand is God's bigger picture. Because, you know, God transcends time. He, he, he can step into time anytime he wants and do things and work. The greatest we see of that is Jesus Christ. But he transcends time. See, we're limited because we want to know the here and now. We can't do anything about the past. We think we know the future. <laughs> but we can't predict what's going to happen five minutes from now. So we are limited in our understanding So a lot of times, God calls us to trust Him, have faith in Him, that He's going to work everything out. And we have that promise in the New Testament. He's going to work all things for good for those who love Him and trust Him in Christ Jesus. So a lot of times you have to trust Him. And we're on this side of the exile. These, now put your mind, put yourself in in that place. A lot of those who are there, 
can recall when Jerusalem was defeated and destroyed. A lot of them could remember when the temple was destroyed. And they'll be living off in exile for 70 years. Now remember, the temple for them represented God's presence. That's where they worshipped. That's where they offered sacrifices. And it was gone. Ezra is reminding them throughout this book, God has not abandoned you. God has been this thing from the beginning, working through human history and events to make this happen, to fulfill his promise he made back in Jeremiah. So we have to remember that too. What great promise do we have? We have lots of promises, by the way. What's the one great promise we have? No matter what happens, as a believer in Christ, God holds me safely and securely in his hand. And that there is a day going to come when Jesus Christ does come again. And nothing can change that. That there is a eternity, there is a heaven, there is, there is a God. So no matter what we face in this life, we have that promise. And it's so easy to get distracted by what's happening around us. Never let us lose sight about what the big goal is. That God is working behind the scenes. Because look what we see here. This edict... Cyrus didn't wake up and go, hey, let's do this. Look what the text tells us. The Lord, which in Hebrew, that's Yahweh, the personal name of God. This is the God they're in covenant with, the only God, the only true God, the almighty God, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. This didn't just happen by its own. It wasn't unplanned, but it was intentional. That The Lord caused Cyrus to act in a way that fulfilled specific prophecies. For example, Jeremiah 25, 11 through 13 tells us that the Babylonian captivity would last for 70 years. And in fact, we read in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, For thus saith the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Now, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and the second temple was built in 516 B.C. That is 70 years. Now, Ezra understood this as fulfillment, but he didn't see it as complete fulfillment. There were things that need to happen. For example, Judah wasn't completely restored yet. The Jews did not have their own king. The palace was not rebuilt. And Israel did not rule over their nation. So he sees this as a fulfillment, but not a complete fulfillment. For example, for us today, what did Jesus tell them? The kingdom of God is at hand, right? And the kingdom of God is now present in me and in you, if you're a believer in Christ, because you have the Holy Spirit in you. So the kingdom of God is here, but it's not fully realized yet because Christ hasn't come back. You understand? So we have this already, but not yet that we're living in. And I would encourage you to go back and look at Scripture and see what prophecies are fulfilled, but yet there's other prophecies that need to be fulfilled. And I would caution you, don't take the newspaper and look at the news and try to, you know, make stuff fit prophecy. But I tell you, we are living in very interesting times. When you see what's happening on the world stage, I can't help but wonder if God's moving the pieces around. He's working to put everything ready For the return of Jesus. I may be living to see the return of Christ. Look what's going on. 
That should bring us joy and peace, but it also should scare us just a little bit. Because when he comes again, there's not going to be no more grace. All right, He's coming back again to reclaim his church, his people. But for those who have never given their lives to Christ, it's going to be everlasting too late. That should grieve us. That should drive us to our knees and cry out to mercy, God, we need to be used by you. People need to hear. In fact, we read in Scripture that God is so patient. He's understanding. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance and eternal life. It's God's heart. For 29 years, I ran from God and I cursed God. But God was patient with me. And here I am today. Free gift of salvation. Free, free grace of God. That should drive us Dearly beloved, for everything that we do, to know that that time is coming and coming very soon. Ezra saw the providence of God, which is a predominant theme throughout this book, that God works within a specific time frame. He has a plan that God does keep his word. His prophecies will be fulfilled. He does influence people to accomplish his will. And God remembers his promises even through our failures to redeem our mistakes for his purpose. I just said a bunch right now, one statement. But God does keep his word. Okay, pay attention to the election, but don't get too concerned about it. As my brother preached last week, we'll never have true peace until Christ comes back. Should we pray? Yes, we're told to pray for people with authority over us. Should we be informed and vote? Yes, do those things. But don't think that one party or the other is going to solve all the problems that we have. There's only one person who can bring true peace, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. Don't give in. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. God keeps his word. And I want to em- emphasize this like uh, Brother Roger did last week. He is coming again. All right? He is. He keeps his word. We see it here. He told the people. Way before it happened, you're going to exile, but guess what? It's only going to last 70 years. And he kept his word. And what's interesting to me, as you read the Old Testament, God made a promise back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Do you remember that? All the nations will be blessed through him and his family. And as you read the Old Testament, you kind of look at what's going on within that family that has lots of problems, by the way. And you think, how is God going to keep his word with all this going on? But God works his will even through our mistakes and failures. God's will will be done. Nothing can stop it. We have choices. We have responsibility to make those choices. And we have to have some of the consequences come from those choices. But make no mistake about it. God's the one in control. He sent a proclamation through all the kingdom and he put it in writing. Now, historical stories will not see the, the hand of God behind this because they found what they call the Cyrus Cylinder, full of inscriptions that give us the uh, impression that King Cyrus was very gracious and respectful of other people's religions and customs. It's something that he did. But the Bible tells us it's God doing this. That God stirred the heart. Of this pagan, he wasn't Jewish, to do this. He saw the providence of God. Now, important matters in the ancient Near East were put in writing. 
There's thousands of clay tablets that give evidence of this. But that Hebrew word that's translated writing, it's more of a technical term. It's used of kind of almost like a legal document. So not only was this transmitted by mouth, but it was also put in writing. So here's the point I'm making. Everybody knew about it. It wasn't done in secret. It wasn't hush-hush. Everybody knew about this going on. Very public. And in fact, this edict is written in Hebrew. There's another one you find in chapter 6 that's written in Aramaic. But more of that in a moment. Look what he says. Here's what King Cyrus says. This edict he puts out. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdom and has appointed me. It sounds like he may be a true believer of God. But remember, he had a policy concerning other people's religions and customs to be respectful of it. And like I said this a minute ago, in chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, we find an Aramaic version of the decree to rebuild the temple. Now, some scholars would say there were at least two declarations that were made. This first one, interesting enough, is written in Hebrew. I say it was for the Hebrew people to understand. It's very gentle, but if you go over to chapter 6, it talks about specifics for the temple, and that is written in Aramaic. It's almost like that was written to the treasurer to make sure they had what they needed. See, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I want you to understand, no did he let them go, but he personally took stuff out that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple and gave it to him and said, go back and build the temple. That is God working. Put yourself in that time frame, in that mindset. Here's this guy who's letting us go and telling us and encouraging us to go rebuild the temple of the Lord. Look what he says. Wherever there is among you of all his people, look what he says. Let him go up to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Let him go up should be understood as permission, even encouragement. But he didn't command them. So people who went, went on their own accord. That's very important to remember. Because some people went back, but some people stayed. Now, I'm jumping ahead of myself once again, but you have to understand this whole idea of them being dispersed everywhere, some of them coming back, some of them staying up there, led to what we see happening in the first century when Jesus comes to earth about the Samaritans and all this. This is where it comes from. It starts right here. Let them go up. And then the major theme of the book is introduced. Why do they go? Let him go up to Jerusalem, look in the text, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who's in Jerusalem. It goes on to say every survivor at whatever place he may live, those, some of them decide to go, some of them stay behind. And this decision they were making will result in insecurity, hardship, and suffering. Once you understand, this wasn't an easy decision for them to make to go back. Jerusalem was in shambles. The temple was destroyed. Their faith and decision and action were of great great importance in the continuation of God's plan of redemption, both in providing the scriptures and in preparing the way for the Redeemer. This is all part of God's master plan. Like I said again, it's easy for me to stand here and say that, but if I was living back then, I don't know if I could say that or not. Because I don't see the whole thing. Go back to Genesis. And look at the whole thread of Scripture, and you can see God at work throughout human history, time and time again, 
working and orchestrating everything to work for his will and his purposes. One thing that Ezra does is goes back and talks about the exodus. He wants that continuation for these people. We see that theme throughout all of Scripture. Exodus, what happened? Moses led his people, or God led his people through Moses, out of bondage into the promised land. Jesus led us out of from bondage from sin, and now he is leading us to the promised land, namely heaven. That's the theme you see throughout Scripture. God working, God never giving up, and God using the least likely people. People that the world look at and go, ha, 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 yeah, right. God uses those people to carry out the most astounding things that have ever been done. Look what he says. Let the men of that place support him with silver and gold. Those who remain were encouraged to provide goods, gifts, and offerings. Now, this could be the people, the Persians themselves, or this could be the Jews that were staying behind. They are to support these people as they go out. So they have what they needed for their journey. And we see from this that God's work is best accomplished with the free will offerings of those who worship him. It's a free will offering. He said, give them support. We have a command in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. It's not really a command, but it reminds us how we should give. Each one of us must do, or each one must do, just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I shouldn't give out of, well, God, I'll give you this if you do that. Don't go down that road. That's a very dangerous road to go on. Well, God, if you do A and B, I'll do C and D. Very dangerous, because a lot of times, if you're like me, you won't fulfill your end of it. Something will happen. But when I give, it's not to, to say, hey, I like Forest Bay Baptist Church. I serve God through this local body, but when I give, I give out of, out of cheer and out of joy because of everything God's taken care of. God has proven himself trustworthy time and time again. As you can tell, I haven't missed many meals. I got clothes. God has taken care of me. He's blessed me beyond measure. And by the way, you can never outgive God. It's about trusting him. How many times, this is God talking to me, how many times, Tim, have I have to show you how I will take care of you if you just listen to me, if you just be obedient to me? Trust me, trust me, you can trust me. When are you going to just let go and trust me? I reminded of the Apostle Paul. We, we, we talk so much about evangelism, which we should do. But getting someone to Christ is just the first step. It's really walking and changing and more like Christ. It leads to ultimate freedom because when we finally realize that we're free in Christ, that he's going to take care of everything that we can need, every possibility, and we just trust him, Paul got that to the extreme that Paul could say, you know what? If you kill me, I'm going to be home with the Lord, be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. You know what? You're going to persecute me and beat me? Well, greater is my reward in heaven. For everything, Paul goes, you know what? God has it covered. I have nothing to fear. There is no fear in perfect love. I want to live like that, dearly beloved. I want to be to that point where I can just walk with that freedom going, you know what? It doesn't matter. Well, I want this person to win for present. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because Christ has me covered. He made this announcement 
The text tells us the heads of the father households of Judah and Benjamin, priests and Levites, arose. This is referring to the extended family. The community of families made the important decisions. The Jews who returned to Jerusalem returned by family unity. And the biblical pattern emphasizes the family as the basis of society. And because of the downfall or destruction of our family in America, that's why we see our society having a lot of confusion, having a lot of pain. These are the ones who responded to his decree to begin the preparations for the return. But look what the text says. It's not just them. Plus, as I mentioned, it also includes everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Wasn't these people, anybody that God stirred up in their heart to go, they went. Once again, God is taking the initiative. He always takes the initiative to stir. And my question to you this morning, right now as you're sitting there looking at me, hearing the word proclaimed, what is God stirring your heart to do? I have the promise, and I claim it this morning, that the word never goes out and returns void. It always goes out to accomplish what God wants, and he wants to do something in your life. Are you going to respond to that? Are you going to turn around and walk out these doors the same way in which you return? God wants so much more for you. He wants to do so much more in your life, but you have to make the choice. You have to make a decision. Just like these people, they sat down. Can you imagine the discussions they had? Yeah, they were living in exile, but perhaps they were living comfortably. Oh, man, we're going to have to sell all this stuff and move down there and start all over again. I've moved quite a bit in my adult life, and the thought of moving right now makes me want to throw up. I've done, I'm, I'm, when you move, you realize how blessed you are because you've got all this stuff you can never find, and when you move, you find it all again, you know. Or you find stuff that you never use. Well, why don't you keep hauling this stuff around? Let's just get rid of it. But the idea of moving back, restarting again, it wasn't an easy decision. But their purpose in going, what drove them to do what they did, God moving in the heart. It was clear that the return from exile was God's work. He took the initiative and the people responded to go back and to rebuild his temple. I think of Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his temple, the train of his robe filled the temple and the threshold shook. God never says a word. And Isaiah says, the response of being the presence of God, I fell down and I cried out. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips living among unclean people. This being in the presence of God, does, God doesn't have to say anything. You understand who you are in relation to him. And what does God ask? Who will go for us? God asking that question of you. What are you willing to do? I'm moving in your heart. I'm proving myself trustworthy. I keep my word. I keep my promises. How much longer are you going to hold on? The definition of insanity, you guys know this. The basic definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. How much time will I spend doing the same thing over and over again? So you know what? I'm tired of this. God, you take it. I'll follow you. I may not understand it. But I trust you. And here's another point that needs to be made here. That you need a community 
Why are historical events important, relevant, when they take place inside a community? And one point Ezra makes throughout the book is going back and to have worship again as a community of believers, God's people. Now, when those events or those things that you do become objects of faith, that's dangerous. Put it to you this way. It's like the Lord's Supper. It's, It's not... The, the table we have down here is not the white linen. It's not, not the cracker or the grape juice that we take. It's not what we do. But we do all those things. Why? Because of what happened. Because he celebrated Passover with disciples. Because as we look at that one event, we think back to what he did and what happened. And we look further into the future He kept his word then. He rose from the dead. He went up to heaven. He said he'll come back. And now we can look forward with great anticipation that knowing that God always keeps his word. And that happens when we're in community with each other. Because guess what? In heaven, you won't have your own house to yourself. We're going to be in community with each other. Now, don't get so excited about that. We're going to be in community with each other. I think Jesus gave us a little insight to this. When he talked about the ten virgins that back then when your daughter was going to get married, the marriages were prearranged. So they would go and they would arrange a prize for the, for the young girls who are losing somebody. And somebody can help raise the crops and take care of things. Once that prize was agreed to, they were married for all intents and purposes. And that young man would go back to his house and add on an addition for him and his bride-to-be. And when he was done, he would go back in the other village and... Claim his bride. Now you have to imagine there's a lot of young girls around. So every time a young man would walk into town, ooh, is it me? Is that my is that my groom coming to take me home? Brothers and sisters, that's how we should feel about Christ. Is this the day? You gonna take me home? You coming for us? And then when they would take his bride home, they'd go in and consummate the marriage. And there'd be a person outside waiting, and when they know it was consummated, they'd go and they celebrate it for over a week. And here's my point. They built all these houses, all these additions. I believe heaven's going to be all of us gathered around as a community, as the way it should have been from the start. All sin completely eradicated, complete, perfect relationship with each other, and right smack dab in the middle of it all, our Lord. Forever and ever. What a great picture. Can you imagine no more sin? Completely gone. No more jealousy, bike bat, and gossip. All that's going to be gone. What's that look like? I have no idea. But I am looking forward to it. And it's most important as we look at our story this morning that the decision to go was God's work in the heart. He raises up leaders, gives them responsibility. He works in other people's heart to respond and participate in the work. And revivals are a result of God's work in the whole community and each individual. We have this huge revival going on. God is raising up leaders. But God's going to raise up other individuals to, to participate and to help. And God works require decision and faith to be in his work. It also comes for planning, preparation, and demands a specific goal. The establishment of the community back in their homeland was important. But the immediate realizable goal was the construction of the temple. You can imagine the intense discussion those families had. So as the people made decisions to go back, 
We read that all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, silver, gold, goods, and cattle. Literally in Hebrew, it says instead of all their neighbors assisted them, literally in Hebrew, it says strengthen their hands. And here we see another Exodus motif. Remember what happened in Exodus? Exodus chapter 12, verse 35 and following. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they led them to have their request, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. And we see the same thing happening here. And Ezra wants them to realize, you're just like the people before the exile. God is with you. God's faithfulness went just beyond allowing them to return. But he made provision for them on their journey. The money, the food, and the stolen items from the temple, as I said earlier, were given back to them by their foreign neighbors. And we must remember that when God reclaims and restores people, it is in abundance, although it may not always be material abundance. And this is where our story begins, going back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. I'm just going to give you, before I close out, just a little taste about what to come. They get to the point where, look at next week, all who goes, they give numbers. I'm not going to read, it's like 62 verses long. I'll point out some highlights. I'm not going to try to read all those names. But you see who goes. And when they get the foundation done, just the foundation. The book, the scripture tells us that there are people crying. People who saw the first temple destroyed. And they're taken off in exile. They remember that and they just start weeping. And here it is. It's being rebuilt before their eyes. And there's other people who are just cheering and happy that the temple was being rebuilt. And it was so loud that you couldn't tell who was crying and who was cheering. And it was so loud that everybody around could hear them. When's the last time we got together as God's people and just cheered on God for what he's done? That was a dream of promise keepers when it first started, guys. Bill McCartney saw the the craziness of the people in the stands cheering for their favorite football team. He said, how can we can't get a group of guys that excited about God? They would just raise up and shout out and cheer on for what God has done. We get more excited about sports sometimes than we do about our own God. God works in history, to fulfill his will. He will use even the rulers of other nations to fulfill his purpose. Likewise, sometimes God will use people in our lives to change our course. Some may not be a part of the community of faith. There may be some non-believers that God will use to steer us back on course. And some might seem the least likely people in the world that God would use. I look back before I gave my life to Christ, before I went into ministry. I can go back and I can tell you, I can see faces of people that God used, non-believer and believer alike, to get me back on course. God was working. 
I can see how God was working to get Tammy and I back to this place in North Texas. I didn't see it then. And there was times I was mad and upset. But look where I'm at now. God always works in history. He's working your life now. To give a practical illustration, to wrap this all up, there was a, a, a movie made on a historical event. It's called Schindler's List. Perhaps you've heard of it. Now think about this. Here is a German businessman during World War II. He is a member of the Nazi party. He can hire the Jews for cheap labor, for nothing. And he can make money, much, much money off the war. A lot of money. But you know what happens? I don't know this to be true, but just me looking into that story, I can't help but think what God was at work. Because you know what he starts doing? He realizes the more Jews I can put to work, I can save their lives. They will not go to the concentration camps. So he uses that business to save hundreds of Jews' lives from being put to death in concentration camps. I think about it. Here's a guy, a German, a member of the Nazi party, the least likely person we would think of saving the Jews from Holocaust. And yet he does it. In fact, he remits or relents at the end saying, I charge too much for this. I could have saved five more people's lives. I could have done this. I could have saved one more person's life. The least likely person that you may look at said, he's going to save a lot of people's lives. From the world standpoint, yeah, he's a German. He's been with the Nazi party. Why would he care? But I'm telling you, that's just one of many stories that you can think of. When you sit back and look, that had to be God behind the scenes, working in the middle of all that destruction, death, and pain. God did not abandon And that's my last word to you this morning. We serve a God who's not an absentee landlord. He did not create the world and step back and say, okay, you're on your own. No, God takes active interest in his creation. He's always at work. Now, there is a standpoint that we have to make choices and decisions. But God's always at work. And I can tell you that he cares so intimately about his creation. That includes all of you. Because look what he did. When man was lost and suffering, the sacrificial system could not accomplish what he wanted it to accomplish. It was all a foreshadowing about what was going to happen. God saying, look what's going to happen in the person of Christ. He sent his only son, not to die for just Americans, or to buy for a certain race of people, the Jewish people, he sent his son to free everybody, to provide redemption and salvation for anybody who believes in him. Anybody. What is God stirring on your heart today? Just as he stirred on those people's hearts many, 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 many years ago to rebuild the temple, to go back. What is he stirring on your heart? Perhaps he wants to stir in your heart and my heart to be part of another great revival. To rebuild the church, to lift her high, lift the name of Christ high, to see more people come to faith in Christ before he sends his son back. 
we say he's patient, but I love what the King James does with that Hebrew word. He's long-suffering. Aren't you glad God's like that? Long-suffering. Now is the time. Take advantage of it now, because there is a time coming very soon that any chance will be lost forever. You have a chance right here and right now to say, God, here I am. I know you're calling me. I don't know how it's going to work out, but God, here I am. Just like those people long ago could say this. I don't know how this is going to work. Tell my family. I, and they're giving us stuff, but there's a lot of work to be done. I, but we have to go. What, what other choice can I make? I have to go. What's going to be your decision this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for telling us and preserving for us all these stories of how you've worked in ancient times. And Father, we know you're at work even today, that you're constantly working to accomplish your will. That you don't set back and leave us to our own devices, but Father, you take active interest in your creation in our lives. Not only are you creator, dear God, but you are a sustainer, your provision. And Father, you never stop loving us. And I pray, dear God, no, no matter how you may be moving on our hearts this morning, that we respond in obedience to your call. Father, remind your people gathered here today, the God that I know you are, the powerful God, the almighty God, loving God. And you stand right here with open arms to embrace anyone answering your call. For your sake, for your name's sake, for your glory, Draw men and women and boys and girls unto yourself. Father, it's all you. Continue to work in our midst. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.